we're going to be opening our Bibles at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. I don't know if you brought a Bible with you. I'm sure the words uh, might be on the screen. Nehemiah, in my Bible, is on page 484, but I don't know if that helps you or not, really. Uh, So Nehemiah chapter 1, and I believe you're in this uh, series on prayer. Uh, So we're going to be looking at a prayer of Nehemiah. I see some Bibles are coming round. Fantastic. Wonderful. It really is a blessing uh, for me to be here, uh, see so many new faces, meet new people. It's brilliant to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. Um, If you don't know who Nehemiah is, maybe just uh, a little word on Nehemiah before I do the reading. Nehemiah lives in a city called Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire, the mega empire at the time. I think it's in modern day Iran somewhere. So Nehemiah is a believer, an Israelite, but he's not living in Israel. He's living hundreds of miles away in Susa because if you remember, the people of God were taken into exile. A hundred years before Nehemiah, the people of God were taken into exile all the way into the Babylonian empire. So they've been there for ages. Some of the Israelites have gone back. Do you remember uh, King Cyrus? allowed many of the Israelites to return to Jerusalem, to Judah, to Israel. But Nehemiah obviously didn't get the uh, invitation, so he stayed. He stayed all the way in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. Does that make sense? Right, that's just a bit of context for us. So um, it's quite a long reading, so I'm going to try and speak quite quickly. Let's have a look. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and and in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, this is chapter 2 now, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can, be, I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I have arrived in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you follow all that okay? <laughs> just about. Well, we'll see if we can unpack it a little bit. Um, let me just say a prayer and then we will get into the passage this morning. Father, thank you for this wonderful story of Nehemiah. How wonderfully you answer prayers and all the mighty things you did for your people back then. We pray, Father, and we look to you this morning to do mighty things in our lives here today. May you still honour your promises and may we still see your deliverance both now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I believe you're in this series of prayer and you've been looking at all sort of different aspects of prayer. And uh, this series is really to try and encourage our church to recognise that without God in our lives, really, we can do nothing. We might achieve great careers, we might build even churches, perhaps, buildings, but unless the Lord breathes life into all we do, it's of no lasting value. We must look to the Lord in every aspect of church life. We must pray to him. We must ask him to, by his spirit, bring life to all we do. Whether it's seeing people become Christians, that is a work of God alone, really, isn't it? Or whether it's about transforming our lives or our community or our worship, every aspect needs the power of the Lord in our life. Um, I, um, in this cold weather, I um, hadn't used my car for a while, so I uh, got into the car and put the key in the engine, tried to turn, and I heard click, 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 click. 
Have you ever heard that noise? I wanted to hear a vroom, vroom, but I heard a click, 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 click. A few lights kind of fizzled on the dashboard, and that was about it. Uh, and in a sense, that reminds me a little bit of what we're saying here, is that we can have a, a nice car. We can think it's got nice uh, upholstery and seats and chairs and nice steering wheel and warmers for the seats or whatever you've got. But if there's no power, if there's no life in the car, it's just dead, isn't it? Of no value at all. And that's what we're looking at, our prayer life, looking to the Lord to inhabit all we do. Even a sermon, right? They are just, the Bible is just words on a page, isn't it? A sermon is just words coming out of my mouth. Really, they're dead in a way. But if God breathes life into them by his Holy Spirit, he can change hearts for eternity. He can change the world. He can build a kingdom. Exciting. Power of prayer. Okay, so let's look at Nehemiah then. Today, uh, the title of uh, this talk is uh, Prayer for the Promises. We need to pray for the promises of God, and that's what Nehemiah does today. We'll get into it. Let's just look a little bit about Nehemiah's life for a moment. Did you notice what his job was? Anyone remember what his job was from the reading? It's a test. Very good. Who said that? He was a cupbearer to the king. Chapter 1, verse uh, 11. A cupbearer to the king. Sounds like a nice job, doesn't it? You just hold there a cup like that. Anytime the king wants a refill, you do that and you bring it to him. Great job, but don't know if it pays well. Maybe. It sounds unimportant, that job. But for a moment, just think about this. It's actually an extremely important job. And actually one that demonstrates how trustworthy Nehemiah was, how trustworthy he was. For this reason, the cupbearer, there's probably only one or two cupbearers in the whole kingdom because they have to be the most trustworthy person because they have proximity to the king and they are the ones who have to sip the wine in case it's been poisoned. So the king has to trust the person who's filling up his wine whenever he wants it. Maybe he doesn't drink too much wine. Maybe it's, I don't know, Coke or something else. Whatever it is, he trusts the cupbearer that what he is bringing or she is bringing is going to be safe. Not only that, he's trusting an Israelite to do it. I find that quite amazing because the Israelites have very good reasons for not liking the king of Persia. For one, they're exiled from their homeland, not allowed to go back unless the king permits it. You can imagine that many Israelites had bitterness of heart. They'd even, just a generation before that, been hugely persecuted in Persia. So, and you know that Nehemiah has a heart for his people, doesn't he? And yet, he's still trustworthy to the king. He must have been an incredible person, Nehemiah, full of integrity, full of forgiveness of heart. He held no bitterness towards the king. He had every opportunity to poison him if he wanted. So I like that little footnote that he was a cupbearer. I think that's an important point to know about Nehemiah. Secondly, what we see about Nehemiah is that he really cares about God's people both those living in exile and those who've that returned to Jerusalem. Do you remember, he hears from one of his brothers, verse uh, 2, Hanani, comes from Jerusalem to Susa, and Nehemiah is keen to hear the news. 
And the news is not good. The news is that the people are in great trouble and disgrace, the Jewish people back in Jerusalem. Why? Because the walls of Jerusalem have not yet been rebuilt and they're all collapsed and there's no gate. Now that might sound, well, what does that matter? But it matters a great deal because they have many enemies around them. It means the people of God are not protected. The temple itself is not safe. It could be desecrated. It could be torn down. And Nehemiah, as soon as he hears that, what does it say he does? It says that he weeps. It says that he sat down and wept, verse 4. For some days he mourned and fasted before the God of heaven. Is anyone fasting for Lent? Giving up something, maybe. I don't know about you, but Nehemiah, it sounds like he fasted for days. So more important to him than food and drink and anything else, more important than his own happiness and his own joy, was this report that he had about how God's people are doing. It really cut him up to hear that. I think that shows a great deal of character for Nehemiah. I, was, um, I visited, visited my mum recently, and when I went down to, she lives a couple of hours away, and I stayed the night, and as I was leaving, um, I realised that my mum's front door, the lock was broken, and uh, it meant that she couldn't lock it day or night, and it was free to be open to anyone who wanted to walk in, and as soon as I figured that out, of course, I said to my mum, I'm not going to leave you now. I've, let's get this door fixed. Before I can go, I can't leave you with an open door because she didn't feel able to know how to deal with it. So I stayed a few extra hours uh, to make sure the lock was fixed. Um, and of course, anyone would do that, wouldn't you? If you knew someone you cared about, their front door was not locked, you would help them. That isn't right. In a similar way, then Nehemiah is looking at Jerusalem saying, the door is not locked. It's not safe. Even though they live hundreds of miles away, even though he perhaps has never visited there in his whole life, he knows that that's his people, that's his family, and they need him. And so he prays. He does something about it. He can't rest until he knows that Jerusalem is safe. I wonder this morning, brothers and sisters, whether you feel like you have that kind of heart for God's people. Maybe it's here at St. John's. Maybe um, you're someone that's sitting here thinking, until I could see St. John's and the church in this town flourishing and safe and strong, I cannot rest. Or maybe you've heard something about a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling and your heart goes out to them. I confess sometimes my heart's not always as passionate as Nehemiah's is. Maybe that's a source of our prayers this morning. Lord, help me be more like Nehemiah that actually does care, not just about my own little life, which I care deeply about, <laughs> but perhaps about others, the church of the living God. When we see the state of the church in this country, does it affect your heart to see? That's Nehemiah, he cares. What next? Nehemiah understands and believes in the promises of God. And he prayed over those promises. Let's just have a little look at that for a second. He understands that God has promised something 
two things, really. He promises, if you notice uh, in verse um, 6, let your ear be attentive, attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, uh, including myself, my father's family, have committed. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Then look at verse 8. Remember, this is the promise, ready? The instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Promise number one. That's not a good promise, is it? It's not one that we might pray about. Lord, you promised if we're unfaithful, you will uh, punish us and exile us. Honour your, <laughs> honor your promise. He recognizes that that is the case. And he confesses about that. He doesn't just say blaming previous generations. That would be easy to do, isn't it? Oh, Lord, I know my previous generations of Christians, they were rubbish. We're not rubbish. Help us. He says, no, we, we've been unfaithful. And your promise was that if we were, you would send us into exile. But then he focuses on second half of the promise promise number two let's have a look at that verse nine but if you return to me and obey my commands then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon i will gather them from there and bring them to the place i have chosen as a dwelling for my name isn't that a brilliant second promise that if they turn back to him it doesn't matter how far they've traveled away. It doesn't matter how far exiled they are. It doesn't matter how lost or how in trouble they are. God promises to bring them home. Not to hold blame. Not to say, um, I told you so. But to hear their prayer and bring them home. One of the most important promises of God, isn't it? One of the ones that we must hold on to most dearly. How often does Jesus tell stories about bringing lost things home? You remember the one about the lost sheep? When Jesus says, I've got 99 sheep and one's gone missing. If I was that shepherd, I'd go, that's not bad actually. I've still got 99. It's cold outside. Let's just leave that one. No. No. Because that sheep that's lost might be bleating and crying out for help. And God promises, no matter how far that lost sheep is, no matter how far it's wandered, the other, from the furthest horizon, it says here, so over the sea and far away, Jesus says, I will hear and I will come and I will bring them home. That is a promise. We need to pray into that promise here at St. John's and at St. Michael's and in Southend because there are many lost people. They might not geographically be far away. They might be next door. They might be just across the street, down at the pier. But spiritually, they're as far as the east as the west is from the Lord, completely lost. We need to pray. Lord, if we repent, if we confess our sins, if we say we're sorry, what, you will then reach out to all the lost and bring them in. Even this morning, you might feel a little bit lost. Sometimes I do. But a simple prayer of, Father, find me, he will. He promises that. You might think I've gone too far this time, or I've done it again. This is the 16th time 
I've left home and got lost. Doesn't matter. That's not what his promise says. His promise says, if you turn to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen. Here, church, back to Jesus, back to his family. And then he says, verse 10, they are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. What a great line of his prayer. He knows that God is mighty to save. I don't know if you've sung that song recently, mighty to save. It comes up in the scriptures over and over again that the Lord is mighty to save and he has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that is able to save. Do you remember in the Exodus when the people of God left Egypt all the, through the Red Sea to the Promised Land? Moses described that as with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you plucked us from slavery in Egypt and brought us home. Can you picture that for a moment? An outstretched arm and a mighty hand. What does that illustration tell you? Look at my arm now and my hand, if it's doing that. What's God trying to do? He's trying to reach out and he's lowering himself. He's stooping down and he's going to take hold of the lost of you or whatever it is he's reaching for and he will grab it with a mighty hand. The good thing about the hand of the Lord is like Jesus says, once, it's, once you're in his hand, you can't, can't get out of it, can you? Even if you're like, get off me. Or even if you're wriggling, you know when you go floppy to try and, you know, not, when my children go floppy because they don't want me to pick them up, you can, you know, it's annoying, but <laughs> I've got a mighty hand as a dad. Imagine the Lord. If he takes hold of you, Jesus says, nothing can be lost from his hand, mighty hand. So he's stooping down, isn't he? And he's plucking out of the lowest places things that he wants to bring back to himself. That's what a mighty hand and an outstretched arm does. That's what Jesus does. That's the point of it, isn't it? When we see Jesus, it's like the father reaching down, sending his son down to the earth, down to the deepest, muckiest pits on earth, reaching down. Why does he go so low? Why does he have to stoop so low, Jesus, even to death on a cross? is because that's where we're lost. We're lost in the deepest places. We're lost in death. We're lost in suffering. We're lost in injustice and anger and pain and sin. We're lost in the tomb. And so Jesus, the Father with a mighty hand, Jesus, and an outstretched arm, he reaches down. And he goes to the deepest places and he brings us back out of the tomb back to glory, back to himself, never to be lost again. That's the promise that Nehemiah is holding on to. Doesn't matter what God's people have been up to, doesn't matter whether the walls have fallen, whatever it is, God, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, with your Christ, with your Messiah, with your Saviour, you can do anything. He is able and mighty to save. What a great prayer of Jeremiah. If we turn to him when we're in trouble, he promises to help us.
Nehemiah. So he believes in the promises of God. What else? I love this point about Nehemiah is that he doesn't just pray about the situation. He's also willing to be the answer to his prayers. Did you notice that? Let me look at chapter 2, verse 5 for a second. He says, Then I prayed to God of heaven, and I answered the king. So he's speaking to the king now. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send someone else to go and help the situation. Is that what he says? No. Does he say, send the vicar? <laughs> Does he say, send the church warden? Does he say, send the police? Send some... He says, send me. Send me. I think God loves a prayer like that. Lord, help them, bless them, but send me to do it. I want to do it at great risk and cost to himself. Because it says here that Nehemiah was very afraid to approach, approach the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer. He's got an important job. He was afraid that the king would say, are you out of your mind? Never. In fact, I'm doubling your hours and locking you down. You're not going anywhere. He was afraid. But he still knew he had to ask. He could have said, send someone else. Send me. You've got to be careful when you pray. Lord, revive this city. Find the lost. Send me. How are you stepping up this morning? How am I stepping up this morning? Do I care? Really important question. So many of us wonder why we're not... God, you said you would do this in the Bible. You said you would do this in the Bible. And he's like, say, I will. Who will go? Who will go? Are you going to step up? Then I'll answer your prayer. I'm much more the person that (laughs) prays about something. Lord, I've dealt with it. It's with you now. Send me. Nehemiah's prayer is answered. So that's good, isn't it? He doesn't just pray about it. He sees an answer. And what's amazing is he started his prayers in the month of Kislev. I'm trying to remember what month that is now. I think that might be sort of November time. And chapter two, it's now the month of Nisan, which is four months later. And he's still really upset because the king goes, why are you so sad? Why are you cry? <laughs> um, he sees that he's so sad. Four months he's been praying, fasting, weeping. And the Lord finally, not finally, but only four months later, answers his prayer. And he prays that he's worried about um, approaching the king, as we've thought. And he boldly goes up to the king and he says a little prayer, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Be with me now. Grant me favor. That's what his prayer is. Grant me favor with the king. That's a good prayer, isn't it? I don't know what it was like in Persia, what the bureaucracy was like and what the difficulty of getting things to happen in in Persia was. But we live in a country, don't we, where there's lots of uh, rules and regulations, bureaucracy and systems and powers to get things done in in this country, which can be challenging, can't it? It can be difficult to get things done. We need to pray about sometimes that the Lord would grant favor to the church in this country. 
that we might a be able to get things done with those that have the power to allow it. And what's incredible, of course, is the Lord doesn't just go, all right, I'll make, I'll make sure the king does that. Nehemiah is so cheeky, he adds in extras. Did you notice that? He, asked, he goes to the king and doesn't say, could you let me go? He says, and would you give me letters that would make sure I get safe conduct on my travels, materials to rebuild the, the Jerusalem and the walls, money that he might stay in a rent for him when he gets there, and a bunch of other things. And the king just says, yeah, fine, what do you need? Isn't that incredible? I find that stark. I find that the Lord's ability to change a situation round is bordering on miraculous when he does it. It's not just the minimum sometimes he gives us, but so much more. Sometimes we think that the world won't allow the church to do what it needs to do, but God can grant favor. I was even just thinking about this church for a moment and how this church was sort of a church plant out of St. Michael's a few years ago. And uh, we did pray about it. We sort of sort of, Lord, what are you going to do in this town? What? We kind of said the same things Nehemiah said. The church is not doing well in this town, in this city, Lord. What could we do? What could we do? And we prayed and this idea of a church plant happened. And then we got to approach the bureaucracies, the powers that be. So we went to the bishop, nervous and afraid. <laughs> bishop, is there anything we could do? Would you grant favor? And amazingly, these doors just started opening. So many doors. The bishop was like, fantastic. We've been waiting for someone to ask. Not only that, that it just timed so that the Church of England, if you know anything about the Church of England, it's got like a, a big investment fund somewhere in the big Church of England Central Church, and it said, do you want any money for it? We say, oh, well, all right, we'll have some money. What, what can you give us, a tenner? And suddenly gave us so much. They literally said, how much do you want? So, ooh. Me and Mike sat down and it was like Christmas for us. So we just listed out some things and we got all of it and more and we just couldn't believe it. But there were several things in there, wasn't it? The same things, the promise. Lord, we want to see people return to you. We confess that we've not done well. Send us. We've got to pray for the promises. We've got to be patient for God's answer. But he will do amazing things. He is mighty to save. No one is too lost. No one has gone too far. His promises are true today as they were for Nehemiah. We can rebuild the church. We could see Southend saved. We could see even just, even if it's just for one or two souls sat here this morning, that is enough for us to weep and mourn and cry out that God would save. Even a soul would be good, wouldn't it? Shall we pray? Father, we're just going to start where Nehemiah starts. We're sorry, Lord. We're sorry that we, your people, have so often turned away from you. 
And that's meant, Lord, not good things for the church. But Father, we confess those. And as best we know how, we're going to just turn back to you, Jesus. Like lost sheep just bleating out a little bit. Help us. We're in trouble. We're defenseless. We are lost. Help us, Lord. Bring us home. May you send Jesus your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. May you pluck us up from wherever we're sinking and reach down to the pits where we've got lost in. And would you pluck us out? Bring us home. And then, Lord, would you grant us favour wherever we need it in our lives, favour with a boss at work, favour with the town council, favour with a bishop, favour with a parent, favour with whoever it is, may you change hearts and minds to enable us to be found again, to enable your church to flourish and grow. And then, Lord, may you send us whatever that call is on our lives, whatever our prayer is, may we be willing to be the answer to that prayer. Send me, Lord. And like Nehemiah, I know we're afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of all what that might mean. But we're going to pray anyway, and we're going to ask. May you answer our prayers this morning, Lord, according to your promises. Amen.